the increase and the decrease. John chapter 3 verses 22 to 36. This morning God has some very important lessons for us from his word as we continue in our series on the Gospel of John. Now before we, we continue on our journey, um, just, just take a moment as, uh, you know, before we get into the car, let's just get out the camera and uh, take a couple of pictures and look a little bit, step back a little bit and take a look at the countryside. In John chapter 3, we started talking about the fact that it's about a relationship, not a religion. Nicodemus, a religious man, a Pharisee who was thoroughly trained in the law and all of this, and God tells him he must be born again. He was very accustomed to religion. That was, he was, he was on safe ground because he knew religion backwards. And yet Jesus rattles his ground, his cage a little bit and says, look, you need to be born again. And he couldn't understand it. There are three musts in John chapter 3. Three musts. There is the must, first of all, of the sinner. You must be born again. Jesus' words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's a must. In verse uh, 14, there's the must of the Saviour, that the Son must be lifted up like the brass serpent in the desert. The Son has to be lifted up. And thirdly, there is the must of the servant, He must increase and I must decrease. It's a a beautiful three-point sermon, isn't it? Right there. We could could go and redo all of John chapter 3 and just focus on these three musts. But now, we're going to get back in our car and continue on our journey. I'll let you think about that for a while. In verses 22 to 26, we look at an old problem. An old problem. Jesus and his disciples went out into Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. And John was baptising and Jesus, well, was baptising. I'll explain a little bit about that. An argument develops with John's disciples about a certain matter and then the disciples have an issue with what is happening. Now until John the Baptist was arrested by Herod and ultimately we know the story that he lost his head, his ministry, the ministry of John the Baptist and his disciples was overlapping with the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. We already know that John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And some of John's disciples started following Jesus. We spoke about that. And from that moment on, John, who introduced Jesus' ministry, he was preparing the way for Jesus' ministry, John started to fade in the background. He wanted to fade because he wanted the light to shine on Jesus. But just think for a moment on how important, how prominent John the Baptist was. And now Jesus was becoming important and prominent as well. Two prominent personalities are involved in similar work and so it is inevitable that a comparison will be starting to emerge amongst the people who follow them. One of the discussions that has occupied world football for some time, it's uh, this discussion could be on the television, it could be around a barbecue, wherever it is, and the discussion is, especially now in World Cup, it seems to be quite relevant, the comparison between Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. One, a Portuguese, the other one, an Argentinian. They earn similar amounts of money, around about the same age, both superstars of of the sport, tremendously gifted, scoring about the same number of goals. And so the competition for best players tends to be, is it Ronaldo, is it Messi, is it Messi, is it Ronaldo, And, and so on and so forth. Both have millions of fans around the world and each side has their reasons why they think their star is the better one. I have my opinion, but I'll keep that to myself. Even though, even though deep down I think that both Messi and Ronaldo probably think that the whole discussion is somewhat irrelevant and they might even be friends for all we know. The competition seems to sell papers and and generate interest. If you have a bit of competition, it generates interest on the sport, in the matter. It sells papers, it sells T-shirts. One says Ronaldo, the other one says Messi. And so it goes. It appears that some of John's disciples like to continue to have him, John the Baptist, as the better player, as the first one, as the original candidate for supremacy. And the argument started on doctrinal grounds, but then it quickly turned personal. You see, the matter of purifying was important to the Jews. According to the Old Testament, it was necessary for them to keep themselves ceremonially clean if they were to obey God. Of course, then the Pharisees came and they added more stuff on top of, and and the whole provision about being ceremonially clean became burdensome. So without realising it, John's disciples were putting John in competition with Jesus by saying 
that Jesus was baptising more than John. But of course in in the next chapter, in John chapter 4 verse 2, the gospel writer John tells us that Jesus himself was not baptising but his disciples were the ones who were baptising. And this whole issue of being ceremonially clean, you, you see, I'll explain it a little bit because it was, a, it was a matter to be baptised was the Jews themselves, they weren't, for them baptism the way that we understand baptism because that was only done for those who were not Jews who wanted to convert to Judaism. And so they would be baptised. It was like an initiation thing. For the Jews themselves, baptism had more to do with being ceremonially clean, the washing, that type of thing. So that's where the whole doctrinal discussion between Judaism in Judaism emerged. But Jesus himself wasn't baptizing. You can you can imagine the problem of elitism if Jesus was in fact the one who was baptizing. Oh, who baptized you? Oh, that was just Pastor Paul, you know, out at Liverpool somewhere. However, I was baptised by Billy Graham. <laughs> How good is that? Huh? How good is that? See, I've got it right here, Billy Graham. I've got it on my wall. You know, I give certificates for baptism. Do you know where your certificate of baptism that Pastor Paul signed? Nah. Doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> you, you can see, you can see how this happens, right? You can imagine some of these people that saying, "Oh, Jesus baptized me," and I say, "Oh, baptized by John." It, it, it's this competition, Ronaldo, Messi, that type of stuff. It's the same thing. There were problems later on, of course. People were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. It, it, it seems to be this thing tends to plague Christianity from way back. This cult, personality cult that we tend to, we tend to do. As humans, even as Christians, we can't help ourselves but to align ourselves to personality cult. We take these little things which to a level where even we use it as a, something of pride and it just overwhelms us. But the idea, like we said before, the idea of baptising for a Jew, you know, it's just, it didn't have any kind of category that, that the way that we understand it. 
So uh, they're discussing this issue with a, with a certain Jew who was bringing up the issue of baptism. And the question was then, what's he trying to do? What, what is Jesus actually trying to do? Is he doing something ceremonially or is he doing something else? And that's where the whole issue of baptism arose. Now in Acts chapter 19, in Ephesus, there were, when Paul gets to Ephesus, there were a number of people who were actually baptised in the way in the baptism of John. We could even call them disciples of John. They weren't disciples of Jesus. You need to look it up. And the church fathers actually tell us that uh, this went on for a, a few generations even after John was beheaded, after he was gone. And, and the issue was this, that you know, John the Baptist was the one preparing the way and yet he was the one that got the attention and people just couldn't let go. It's, perhaps it's a little bit hard for us to understand 2,000 years ago how it is that we can follow the servant, John, rather than the master, Jesus. Yet that is exactly what has happened. You might be surprised to hear this or not. There is a sect called the Mandeans who is thought to have originated around this time. They settled in what is now modern-day Iraq and Iran. And what is interesting is that the Mandean community reveres John the Baptist rather than, rather than Jesus. It's estimated there are, that there are between 60 and 70,000 Mandeans worldwide. And because of the situation in Iraq and the persecution with ISIS and all that type of stuff, many of those Mandeans actually came to settle in Fairfield and Liverpool. And there is approximately 10,000 Mandeans who follow John the Baptist uh, who, who live in our, in our area. I'm just giving that as, as information. Uh, I think I, I might have told you the story once that I, I went to visit somebody who, uh, when I was a pastor in my previous church, and it, on the paper there it said that they were Baptists. And when I turned out to the, to the bed and, and said, are you a Baptist? He says, yes, I'm I'm the real Baptist. I follow John the Baptist. And I said, okay, I, haven't, I didn't hear about this. I didn't know about this. And, and uh, he was explaining to me that they, for them, it's not Jesus, it's John the Baptist. And the thing for these Mandeans is that for them, baptism is a purifying force. It's a key ritual. Unlike us, Mandeans may be baptised, they may be baptised hundreds, even thousands of times over the course of their lives. So if you ever go, you know, you could, you could see some of these uh, Iraqi Christians, uh, they might go in Chipping Norton, they, they might in some area around the river and they have their, they're saying, oh wow, it's a baptism. Man. It's, it's something that they do as part, they might do hundreds of times over the course of their, 
their lifetimes because it's a, it's a purifying force for them, uh, water. Now, what was John's response in verses 27 to 30? And to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. His response to this controversy that has erupted between Jesus' disciples and John's disciples, he answers with conviction. Firstly, he says, all ministry, all blessing comes from God. So there can be no competition. Our gifts, our talents, our opportunities, our provisions, all come from God, so he alone must get the glory. Not some of the glory, not a share of the glory, but all of the glory. Do not forget that. James tells us, and we read it at the beginning, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He doesn't change. It all comes from above. Then he goes on to compare himself like the best man at a wedding, verse 29. If you've been to a wedding, I've been to one recently, and any wedding is all about the bride and the groom. In, in Western culture, it's more about the bride than the groom. But in those days, in, in Eastern culture, it's more about the groom rather than the bride. Any attempt by anybody within the wedding party, within the people who are invited, any attempt by even the best man or the matron of honour or anyone else to upstage the bride and the groom is just silly, it's just stupid, isn't it? The groom has to wear the best suit. And of course, the bride wear the prettiest dress. Girls, you know this. You never want to upstage the bride at a wedding. It's just not cool. It's just, right, it's not protocol. You don't want to do that. She has to be the prettiest in every sense. And, and, and what the, the Apostle John here is saying, look, I'm not going to do that. I don't care what you guys are saying. I'm not going to do that. In fact, in fact, I am so full of joy. I am full of joy at the groom. All the light was on him. And John pointed others 
to the light. I think about the times that, how many times Christian leaders, pastors, evangelists and everything else, they want the spotlight to shine on them rather than the spotlight to shine on their master. I'm reminded of the way that Rick Warren starts his, uh, his book, The 40 Days of Purpose. And the book starts with, it's not about you. I just wish that all of us would accept that, would be reminded of that. It's not about you. When we go through trials, it's not about you. When we go through difficulties, not about you. When we go through oppression, it's not about you. When we go through the victories and then we are able to climb Mount Everest and, and shout to the top, I'm king of the world. You don't get to do that. It's not about you. It's not about you. Oh, you get to rejoice. You get to feel the joy. You have to have complete joy, but it has to be diverted. My joy is in Him. My glory is in Him. Because He has given me the ability to climb. He has given me the ability to overcome. He has given me the ability to turn up, to be here, to have this. It's not about you, I don't care what they tell you at school. I don't care what they tell you in all those self-help books and all of that other rubbish that is out there. It's not about you. I just wish more Christian leaders would recognise that as well. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant, you see, whether you're the pastor of a church of 10,000. Or whether you're a pastor who's been languishing in jail for the last 10 years. And it seems like all of the world has pretty much forgotten about you. Remember, it's not about you. Yes, the declaration of John the Baptist here, that his, his assurance, his conviction, he says that Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This conviction, this declaration that he, that he says here, we know from the Gospels that later on as he's languishing in jail, that the doubts will start to come. Are you the one or should we wait for somebody else? You see, from conviction to doubt, 
That's, that's the human experience. That is the walk of the Christian, isn't it? And then Jesus has to reassure him. That is what the pressure of trials and persecutions and tribulations can do to the best of us. It doesn't matter whether you are the greatest of the prophets that Jesus declared John to be or a humble pastor out in the sticks or a scripture teacher or a leader in any ministry in the church. It's not about you. And it is unfortunate and unfortunate that the people themselves elevate their leaders to a positions that they themselves will be uncomfortable with. That is why John the Baptist declares he must increase and I must decrease. Even though his disciples would have been a little bit concerned, his fans would have been a little bit concerned on hearing this, it has to be true for all of us. Let me quote you the words of Oswald Chambers and I quote Goodness and purity ought never to attract attention to themselves. They ought simply to be magnets to draw to Jesus Christ. A beautiful saint may be a hindrance if he does not present Jesus Christ but only what Christ has done for him. He will leave the impression What a fine character that man is. That is not being a true friend of the bridegroom. I am increasing all the time and he is not. Just uh, this past week in Paraguay, my country of birth, as it is in practice in a lot of Catholic countries that a certain person, a nun, a priest or somebody of prominence who has been a fine person, a fine Christian according to to the church is declared a, a saint. And just this past week somebody in Paraguay has been declared beatified as they call it a saint. From that moment on, they can be prayed to and all of that stuff that goes on. What happens? You see, my problem is, what happens there? The light suddenly is shining away from the Saviour and suddenly it's shining on a person, isn't it? Isn't that what is happening? Isn't that what, exactly what we are to guard against? It's not about the person. It's not about the mother of Jesus. It's about the Saviour. It's about Him. It's not about your pastor. It's not about whoever it is you, you love to listen online as your preacher. It doesn't matter. It's about Jesus Christ. It might not even be about that person in church whom you admire. Oh, how I wish I was like Him. That's exactly what Oswald Chambers is saying. The moment you do that, the moment you're saying what a fine character that man or that woman is, you are 
diminishing the light on Jesus Christ and you're pointing it to a person. And a lot of times that will only lead to deep disappointment. In fact, instead of me increasing all the time, getting a bigger head, the bigger my head, the smaller that Jesus becomes. But the way it's supposed to work, he must increase and I must decrease. I can tell you from the bottom of my heart The longer I live this Christian life, the harder it becomes. The more difficulty, the more uncertainties and doubts overwhelm us in so many different ways. The longer you're on the Christian track, the tyres get worn out, the squeaky wheels start to, you know, you know what I'm saying, the aches and the pains, the fading glory and you're saying, Lord, why me? And the answer is, why not you? It's not about you. It's about me. And and, and this is, please understand this. Please. Why is God doing this to me? Why not? Are you someone special or something? Are you what? Why not? Why not? Do not be surprised because we have to constantly understand this. He must increase, I must decrease. Whatever way, whatever shape that takes, whatever, God is going to continue to do this. Remember the words of Hudson Taylor, we are little servants of an illustrious master. That is the way to look at it, I think. So please don't make so much of speakers and writers and pastors and ministers that you miss out on the real issue of Jesus. He must take prominence in everything. The summary, verses 31 to 36. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. And again, the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives a spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And the last verse in chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The great news. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Just a note on the background here. Scholars aren't in full agreement on whether these, on who's speaking these words, whether it was John the Baptist 
or, or this is a doctrinal summary of John the Apostle, the Gospel writer here. Like we said last week, it doesn't really matter in the end because it is all the Word of God. It is God's truth. And, and here we, we have one of the major themes in John, the, the word witness or testimony. It, it will appear some 47 times throughout the Gospel. So why should we listen to his witness? Well, he came from heaven. The Father loves the Son and all things have been placed under his authority. This is the pinnacle of Christology, of Jesus Christ, of who he is. You cannot go any higher than this. And this is something that obviously the Jews disputed. They would not accept his testimony that he was the Son of God. This is something that the great majority of the world today does not accept. And twice he repeats the statement, because he comes from above, he is above all human teaching. No human teacher comes from above. A human teacher is simply a product of the earth, of the education system of who his teachers were. What we have here is the ultimate truth that comes from outside of our human experience. It's something that we could not have made up. And it's because of this that it is something that we must respond to. There can be no neutrality when it comes to the witness of Christ. Either he is embraced and accepted or he must be rejected. Ignoring him is the same thing as rejecting him. You see, to accept his teaching is to testify that God is in fact true, verse 33. To reject it is in effect to make God a liar. Think about these words that conclude the chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The reason why he came to do such a radical thing is to make it possible for us to escape the wrath of God and to embrace, to accept, to receive the love of God. The one who deserves the love of God, namely the Son, receives the wrath of God on the cross. We who deserve the wrath of God receive his love on the cross, the big swap. Here's the issue. While the decision to believe or not in the Son is ours to make, when it comes to eternal life, 
He will not include those who do not choose to be included. Therefore, it is a very dangerous heresy to suppose that it doesn't matter what you believe, who you follow, that everybody gets in, whether they like it or not, because that is not what the Scripture teaches. What you believe and subsequently how you live after that does affect your eternal destinies. The scriptures do not lie. God does not lie. And some might say, well, okay, particularly in the current climate in which we live, how can you say God loves me and yet tell me that he is angry with me? that his his wrath is on me. How can you say that? That is not very politically correct. Because, you see, we love John 3.16, for God so loved. But as we saw last week, that is not a contradiction to God's wrath. To a world condemned, God shows his love by sending the Son If you reject the Son, you reject the gift. You reject the love and therefore remain condemned and God's wrath remains on you. This is why it is not a religion, it is a relationship. Don't reject the gift that God has given you. As we know, the most important question anyone can ask is this, who is Jesus Christ? The answer is the key to everything, isn't it? At the start of this chapter, a religious man named Nicodemus wanted to know who Jesus was, so he came to Jesus In the next chapter, chapter 4, we have someone who wasn't even asking the question, so Jesus went to her. Now, if you grew up in a church, you need to ask yourself that question and come up with an answer that will be a key to your eternal destiny. Who is Jesus Christ? He's either the truth or he's a lie. And and the third option, Josh McDowell says, that he's utterly insane. But you have to choose. And once you have made a decision for Christ, it is not the end... It is simply the beginning, the beginning of a journey, the beginning of this relationship because you're wanting to know more and the more you know, you find out that the less you know. You understand what I'm saying? Because you open one door and in fact, just being a door with a storeroom, it's actually a corridor 
and, and with all it's an alleyway and then you open another door and that leads somewhere else and it just the journey continues and the, the journey of discovery is, is immense. And this is the key to your growth, the key to your ministry, the key to your service. Because the more you grow in Christ, the more you find just how little you are. That's the way it's supposed to work and God becomes bigger and bigger and greater and greater and amazingly humongous God. And you say, wow, that is the God who I've given my life to. I hope and I pray this morning that all of us here have already given our lives to Christ. If you haven't, I would love to have a chat with you at the end of our service. You need to answer that question, who is Jesus Christ? If you've answered the question in the past, and like John the Baptist, you're asking yourself, are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else? There is no one else. You've made the right decision. Whatever it is you're going through, God will help you get through it. And there are brothers and sisters here who can encourage you in your Christian walk. Away with the doubts. Come to a conviction on the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That is truth. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Not this side of heaven and certainly not in the next. Why? Because God's wrath remains on them. May God help us. May God continue to open our eyes. May God continue to convict us onto the truth, the beautiful truth of Jesus Christ. Amen.